on this next lesson. Let's open in prayer. Father God, I thank you for uh, the blessings that you've given to us. Uh, it's an amazing thing that you have opened our eyes and changed our hearts and that we now believe in you. I pray, Father, that as we focus our minds today on this lesson, that um, we would help to help us to understand and stay focused on something that um, can sometimes feel a little abstract. Um, the things that have happened in the past, history, places, different places in the world. It's interesting for us as Christians, but I pray that it would be more than interesting that we would have a, um, a love for the brethren in different places in the world and a desire to understand how you've moved and what work still needs to be done in different places. I thank you once again that you have changed us and that you have given us a place in your family. But our family extends not just here, but everywhere that people call in the name of the Lord. Pray that we would believe that and we would understand it, and that we would not hold partiality in our hearts, but that we would seek that to increase your kingdom no matter where we are or wherever the church is, that we would seek to send supplies and missionaries and resources to those, because that should be our goal here, is to expand your kingdom. Thank you again for all the good things you have given us here in America. I pray that you would bless us, and I pray that you would forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, if you've been here the last couple weeks, we've been doing a very interesting study, a study on global church history, the idea that we're, we're looking at different places and we're saying, okay, what's the historical development from not being Christianized all the way to being Christianized? And if you guys haven't picked up a handout, I highly recommend you pick one out because if you're like me and you've been a product of the American uh, schooling system, you have no idea what geography is. So a map really is helpful to understand what we're talking about. Especially since, like, you know, when, when I talk about certain names and stuff, there will actually be icons on this uh, African map that shows uh, where these various churches and the time periods, you know, this, this graph is just great. This wasn't put together by me. You'll see on the front handout, this is, says it's uh, the, Cap the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We're using their outline for this because obviously there's a lot of research that has to go into this. So uh, we're kind of using their notes as a jump-off point. So introduction about Africa. In Acts 8, one of Jesus' apostles runs into a kingdom official from Numbia, a kingdom of Eastern Africa. You'll see that in the front of your handout. It says in Acts 8, 26 through 27, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, an, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And if you know the rest of the story, Philip talks to this man, and this man is professing faith in Christ, and he's baptized, and he goes his way, and uh, Philip goes his way. So we don't know if he was the first African convert, but he certainly went somewhere, and he was certainly an official, um, and he would go on to go home to this area that's considered one of the oldest Christian communities on the African continent. In terms of the changes of Christian adherence in the world, in Africa, from 1900, so thinking 120 years ago, there was only 8 million Christians, but in 2008, that number had jumped up to 423 million, or roughly 47% of the population. And what this reflects is a significant shift of the population center of Christian adherence. No longer is the population center in North America and Europe, but it's more in Africa and South America. Now, one thing I wanted to cover, it's not in the notes, but in my own research, like I said, if you look at this map, 
of Africa in your handout, you'll see that there's a couple of churches in the top, and there's a whole bunch in the bottom. And there's a big thing that says Sahara Desert in the middle of that, <laughs> which is why we talk about North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, hence the Saharan Desert. Now, the thing to understand, put your minds in, to put something in context, the Sahara Desert is the size of the United States from coast to coast. So if you look, if you just put like an America and plop it down right there, that's the size of the Sahara Desert. It's humongous. I mean, you think about when you drive from here to California, you see that big desert and you see how long it goes on for a, just imagine driving the entire length of the United States and it's just desert continuously. That's how big that is. So you can see why there's, it's really hard to get from North Africa to South Africa by land means, right? Like you're going to walk past all of America to get you know, through that? No. So what ends up happening, of course, is that there's ports, people sail ships around, and so you'll see these concentrations in different harbors, right, cutouts into the island. You see all the ports are kind of on the, on the uh, western side, and then there's some at the, at the bottom in Cape Town, hence Cape, right? There was a place for them to go in and port, and then on the other side where it's Mombasa and Zanzibar and Mozambique and all those other places. So you, uh, just wanted to get your mind wrapped around that and why uh, you have that. But another big thing to understand that's not really covered in a huge way here is that we have a separation of even um, regional religions. So to, to get us started, what happens is in the first century, some of the earliest Christian believers of the Roman Empire went to North Africa. In fact, a lot of Christianity's intellectual center was in North Africa, believe it or not. Um, theologians and pastors like Tutrellian, uh, Cyprian, Athanasius, uh, Augustine, or Origen, all these men actually came from North Africa. They were the leading thinkers and leaders on the matter of Christian doctrine, in particular in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And there's numerous accounts of Christians dealing with persecutions as well. Now, the thing to understand is that the, the area of Northern Africa, we don't think of this because we think of Africa for some reason as a separate place, but if you look on your map, the northern region of Africa is actually part of the Mediterranean, right? So this is just a normal Mediterranean area. And so North Africa is totally different in terms of cuisine uh, and customs and culture than South Africa is. Just in the same way America has so many different cultures, even though we're all Americans, I mean, New York is different from the South and the South is different from you know, Minnesota. Minnesota is different from the West. So you have totally different regions. Uh, and we have to remember that when we think of countries, we can't think of them as one unified or, or monolithic culture. They, there's vast differentiations between cultures. And so northern Africa was really just a, it was more a, a part of the Mediterranean culture as people were sailing around the ports and trading in terms of uh, clothing and food and ideas and all kinds of different things, right? There's a, that was the way that everyone kind of shared their wealth, especially in times of famine or need especially with the Romans, because the Romans were all about expanding their territory and basically trying to gain the wealth and the fealty of their various peoples they conquered. So here you have uh, Egypt, Ethiopia are the, basically the, the two major areas. And from the third century until today, there has been a group of churches that exist that in this changed area. Like this area has changed a lot, but they have still stuck um, in terms of like those areas being very Christianized. But one of the things that they've struggled with is that they are, I don't know how to say this word, monophysite. I don't know, I was looking up the pronunciation of it, couldn't find the pronunciation. But the idea is that Christ only has one nature, not two. 
They believe that. That's a very uh, a problem that they've had for a long time. And you may think that's a small matter, but obviously as Christians, that's not a small matter, right? If, if Christ can only have one nature, you have to pick. Is he only human or is he only God, right? And so that becomes a huge problem. And actually the Council of Chalcedon, which was in 451, uh, that's where we have the understanding that Christ was one person, but two natures, right? He had his nature as God and his nature as human. And we call that, you know, the hypostatic union, the idea that one person can have both of these natures, and it's not a contradiction, but it's the only thing that makes sense when you think about Jesus being able to do things that only a divine person could do, and at the same time, he grew hungry, he grew tired, things like that. It's a little bit of a history lesson. So we have this problem here where they have this, they struggled with it, they still struggled with it to a degree, and then you have to add insult to injury, because you, you think about it, they're struggling through this 451, then around 610, uh, you know, you have Muhammad in Mecca show up, and he feels like he was given a divine message by God, and he's preaching an uncompromising monotheism. And Muhammad gains this gather of followings, and they explode over the next 50 years, and they basically uh, grow across this area, and in Africa, uh, and to the south and all the way to the east of Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia battled Muslims for many years, and Islam would shape a large portion of the continent even today. It's important to mention that these churches, because they represent some of the earliest churches in Africa, these northern ones you're seeing here, and I know that we're just glancing over them right now, but there are many numerous good resources. Uh, the one that this re lesson recommends is called The Early Church by Henry Chadwick. I think that's in your notes as a resource to dig in this region. Now, that's a big thing. You'll notice that we kind of glossed over the north, and now we're focusing on the south. And the reason why is because if you look at any map, say on Wikipedia or something like that, some easy resource, you'll see that if you look at religion in Africa, you'll see a big Islamic symbol in the north, and then all Christian at the bottom. And they claim that 47% are Christian, and around 45% are Muslim, and then there's some indigenous ones that have still stuck it out for the most part, but it's very small. It's only like 5 or 6%. Now, to me... I'm instantly kind of quirking my eyebrow. I'm like, 47% are Christian? Or really? Like, or is that just more of a, a misunderstanding that we have because here in America, we don't unite religion and government. But there, they do, right? And so if you grow up under a Christian government, you're technically a Christian country, which is why we've had all kinds of problems with um, you know, Muslims in the past, is because They'll, they'll capture a bunch of news reporters that are from America, and they'll say, denounce Christ, and these Christian reporters aren't Christian, and so the, the, are these, uh, these reporters aren't Christian, so they're like, okay, denounce Christ, and they're like, ha, we've won a victory against the evil Americans, and it's like, well, no, they, in America, it's not about the, the government, it's about personal belief, but, to, but you'll have to understand that in the, the mindset of pretty much the rest of the world, that's not the case. If you grew up under a country, and you're national religion is something, you are that thing, regardless of uh, your personal profession. Uh, that's where we get something called nominalism, which is the idea that you're, you are the bare minimum of a adherent, right? This is the problem Catholics have too, right? You baptize your children into the Catholic Church, they go to Mass, they, they do their, um, what's that thing called, confirmation? You know, they get all the way up to 13, they get confirmed, and now technically they're Catholic for the rest of their life, even if they don't really understand it or have ever made a personal uh, confession. So what's that going to produce? That's going to produce people that don't really believe, but they claim that they are this thing. So that's the problem we have here. And so when we're talking about the southern area being Christian, that's very much a misnomer in terms of what their actual belief and what 
the, what the problems we have in terms of mixing religions um, when we go and we have missionaries go there. So the next big step uh, that the outline has, I think that you'll have this here, is the European exploration, 15th century to the 19th century. There's just a, a massive jump in time period because for the most part, uh, the South was inaccessible uh, because of the Sahara Desert, right? Until we built ships and supply lines and things that we could get all the way around and get into these ports, uh, the world as we know it, history as we know it, the Romans writing down things, was pretty much like, you know, the Mediterranean, a little bit east, a little bit north, but the Sahara Desert created this blockage that really couldn't get past until we had ships strong enough and supply lines that were able to get around. So there's this huge massive chunk of time where nothing happens, and then you have this huge exploration age where you had a renaissance where Western Europeans were taking a great and renewed interest in this world beyond Europe. And this European interest would cause an explosion of Christianity beyond these traditional borders. You have far-flung churches in Asia, China, Sudan, and now you have European-style Christianity being exported and transported into other distant countries, such as African areas. So the missionaries would go out and they would seek to convert people that they found. Right? That's the number one thing. They were specifically missionaries would be sent out. That's one way they did it. The other way they did it was they would actually send out colonies, right? They wanted to establish colony, and then they would go into this newly discovered land, they bring the religion with them, and they would just educate the local people on the religion. And this is not, of, co of course, exclusive to just Protestants doing this. Obviously, Catholics did this as well. Uh, there was other religions as well that did this. So the Portuguese were the leaders in, in this exploration in Africa. They battled Muslims for a, a years, and then in an effort to find a way to India, they started exploring the African coast uh, around 1497. Explorers would open up the African coast, building forts and trading posts and then settlements. So about 1482, so we're almost to 1500, a fort was built into what's now Gana, uh, Ghana, and Catholic missionaries arrived there and began preaching to the indigenous people. Africans can be... Uh, converted to Christianity often as the chiefs and the, king the kings of the tribes converted, and then they had all their followers baptized. So that's why you have this Christianization of this area is because they would preach to the leaders, the leaders would convert, and they would say, okay, everyone gets baptized. And it's pretty amazing because then you have these huge numbers being reported, right? You have, you know, 40,000, 50,000 pe people being converted in a year in Africa. But really it was because of these mass baptisms. Like you would have people just line up in a line and be baptized. Uh, I, and personally, I think that a lot of those people didn't really understand what was going on. You know, if you're just told, line up because the chief says to, okay, you're going through the line, get dunked in water, you know, you're like, oh, I'm Christian now? Okay. But you can, you can immediately imagine what the problem is, right? <laughs> it's like, what happens to your own personal beliefs and uh, what you believed prior to this? So one of the major problems that they had was that, and you'll see this as we talk about it for the rest of this, this section, is that the religion of, the indigenous religions of Africa were very not, uh, how do I put this? They weren't, they weren't written down. So they weren't concrete. They've kind of flowed and ebbed depending on what people believed. And so it was ripe for what's called syncretism, which is the idea that you blend religions together, right? You mix them together, you kind of form your own religion in your own mind, and you kind of say, well, everyone's kind of right, you know, coexist, bumper sticker, all that kind of stuff, right? Everyone has a piece of the truth, so on and so forth. And it's, it's particularly bad in, in this area, especially since um, because they had not a lot of concreteness in their beliefs, like they would literally go to another tribe, talk about their beliefs, and just kind of mix it in. You know, oh, 
your, your God does this, there's more higher gods, there's all kinds of different things, they can have kids, and, and then it's kind of mixed together, and it was never concrete. And that was the problem, is that everywhere the missionaries went, they found that there wasn't one consistent kind of belief. It was a mixture everywhere they went. There would be some from A, some from B, some from C, and then you get to D, and it'd be A and B pushed together. Um, so this was obviously very difficult when you think about if you were a missionary, and you're going, say if you're going with a small missionary team, and you show up, how do you, how do you understand that? And then how do you disassemble that, right? How do you separate what you're trying to tell them with what they're thinking when you say things like God, angels, uh, divinity, son of God, things like that. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. So the early Roman Catholic missionaries, when they had these first interactions, uh, you would have for the next century or so these, Af- these Roman Catholic missionaries, talking about 1500, going to 1600, and they would be going across the African con- continent and they ad- adopted what they received from these Roman Catholic priests, but they, they just supplemented it to their traditional religions. And so when you have this blending of beliefs, you have all kinds of heresies that pop out of it too. And through different locations, the early Catholic efforts achieved much. You know, they would, they would go and they'd persuade these local chiefs to be baptized. He'd order his followers. Like I said, they'd have about 50,000 people baptized in, uh, in, you know, just a small section of time, probably about 50 years. In Congo, in 15, uh, 1543, there was roughly 2 million Roman Catholics, half the population. But nevertheless, nothing was being deeply established, and everything relied on the Europeans. And so what do you think happened is that when they all left, it kind of broke down, right? You had built up this thing that was completely reliant upon the Europeans that had brought all of this, uh, these ideas and was being held together by the Europeans, and then when they left, it all left with them, or it broke down for the most part. And, of course, you, you can't talk about this area of Africa without talking about the slave trade, right? The slave trade would decimate the economy and the people of the Congo and many other people groups in Africa. Roughly 4,000 people were being stolen from Congo alone for slavery a year. So the slave trade quickly became central to the economies and the burgeoning power of many European countries. So that's, that's kind of like that area up to 1500. And now you have the Protestant arrival, or I should say the 1700s, but the, the Protestant arrival happens then. And the first non-Catholic to arrive on the continent were the Dutch. Their aim wasn't m- missionary in effort. They were actually there for trade. And they settled in the very tip of Africa, in Cape Town, South Africa. By the 18th century, the Protestant powers, the Brits and the Danish, had forts set up along the western, coast Af- or the western African coastline. And these small settlements were primarily for trade. But the latter half of the 18th century saw that the first Protestant missionaries to Africa uh, coming out of those areas. And they were at first tentative because you're kind of penetrating into a heavily Roman Catholic area. The first Anglican missionary was uh, Thomas Thompson, and you'll see that in the uh, your area in your handout here. You'll have the Protestant missions, 1792, 1795, 1799, Baptist Missionary Society, London Missionary Society, Church Missionary Society. Those are the three major groups that did it. The new missionary impulse was, for the most part, orga- most part, organized not by European churches themselves, but by new societies expressly founded for the purpose of mission. So there was a point where Europe kind of realized that they couldn't just stay with the gospel in Europe. They had to send people out specifically for missions, not as a colonial, area, a colonial thing, but this was the, the starting of the idea that instead of sending Europeans 
to these areas to set up churches and then be the entire structure so that if they had to leave, everything collapsed, right? That's what was happening. They were saying, William, William Carey and others were saying, okay, we need to go there and we need to train the local indigenous people to understand the gospel to a degree that even if we leave, they can propagate it. They can teach it to their own people and they understand their own histories and their own social stories, their own folklore to a degree that they can actually parse that better than we can. Because you're going into an area completely cold and then trying to understand that culture before you can even craft the gospel in a contextual way that they understand it. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stories from missionaries talking about that, where they, they go and the customs are so different that um, they have to learn how to communicate first, and then they have to learn the style of storytelling, the style of way of communicating, because it's different wherever you go. So you have a lot of societies, uh, like you have a lot of these groups going out, and it has nothing to do with the imperialism that had come before. Missionaries were not sent, uh, even to Europe or America, uh, with the simple aim of just colonizing, but it was more of a missionary aim that was going. But when they got there, of course, you have people that are established people, so you have missionaries coming to these areas. These areas have established people already, established churches, Protestant and Roman Catholic. And of course, these churchmen are kind of suspicious. You know, uh, here are these people coming in with these, uh, you know, bright ideas and, you know, all this hope in their hearts, and it's something that, that caused a lot of conflict, where they were, they were still struggling with the idea that they needed to establish these, these countries and these churches on their own and then leave them, or not leave them, but let them establish themselves instead of being kind of um, a carbon copy of European churches, right? There, there was a, a huge, I think there is still to a degree, a huge divide on this, on do we just stamp European churches everywhere, or at least, you know, American churches, or do we have to understand that they're going to have different ways of doing things? Um, I can't remember for the life of me now, but I remember a story from a missionary who was talking about, he went to Africa, and one of the things that the Baptist church there had, had said was for everyone to wear, for women to wear head coverings, okay? So he walks in this church, you know, he's from America, and so he's going in, they're like, oh yeah, you know, it's going to be different here. He gets in, and every woman is wearing a head carf, scarf, right? But none are wearing anything on their chests, because in that area that he was in, that wasn't a common thing. So propriety was shocking to him, right? Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're all wearing their head coverings, but they have nothing covering, you know, their chest at all. And for an American, obviously, that was something really shocking. And it goes to show that even if you, even if you have propriety or you have rules that you want to establish, even biblical ones, you're still going to have to think about the way that those cultures have developed and what they think is uh, propriety and what's not propriety. Uh, I think that we struggle with things like tattoos, piercings, all kinds of stuff, right? We don't know where the line is, um, how, how modestly should we dress, how, how not so, uh, should we wear makeup, should we not? It, we all struggle with those same kinds of things, but, uh, you know, it's, I think it's even stronger here where you don't have exposure to it. Like, we can see videos and movies and things, and we have at least a bit of an understanding of different places in the world. But at this time, you have a Protestant who's only known one kind of lifestyle, getting on a boat, showing up in Africa, and then it being completely different, right? Uh, just another world. So something to keep in mind. It was very difficult work, and I, th I think it's just amazing that so many people wanted to go to a place so different from what they had known uh, to try to work with these, uh, these indigenous peoples. So then you have the African mission effort, efforts to Africa. So... This idea was helped by the important work missions to Africa by Africans. 
Protestant Christianity had become widespread among slaves and former slaves in the USA and Canada and also in Britain. May, uh, they were keen to bring Christianity to their continent of origin, and so we have some of the first African Protestant missionaries to Africa. One of the first was Jacobius Capetian, ordained in Holland, uh, and he left for basically South Ghana, where on behalf of the Dutch Reformed Church, he preached to his fellows. He translated the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and a Reformed Catechism into Fante. Another was a guy named Philippe, who succeeded Thomas Thompson at Cape Coast, and he was trained in England and became a chaplain to the community until his death in 1816, and he was the first African to be ordained by the Church of England. The efforts of these African missionaries were aided, uh, aided migration into Africa by large numbers of Christians from overseas. These were freed slaves and their descendants coming to start a new life and what they still saw as their home continent. And in 1792, 15 ships full of former slaves from all over North America arrived in Freetown, Sierra Leone. The new settlers were, for the most part, fervent evangelicals of the kind we saw in the last. Indeed, the, the preachers David Ash and Moses Wilkinson were among them. So they march off the ship, clutching their Bibles. One group sang the hymn, Wake and sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, for they regarded this return to Africa as the new exodus to a promised land. As this suggests, Christianity played a central role in the life of the new colony, and it wasn't too long until these settlers took the gospel to the indigenous people around that area. And in 1807, the Slave Trade Act passed in Britain, and the government tried to enforce by policing the West African coast and seizing illegal cargoes of slaves. They were taken to Freetown and freed, and the population of the colony swelled by 2,000 to 3,000 people, many from Nigeria. They were convinced by their experience that the god of their old indigenous African religion had abandoned them, and they were receptive to the god of the Freetown evangelicals. So the thing to understand about this era is around 1800 when this was passed and they, they made slavery illegal, the British would then spend a ton of time basically blockading all of Africa to make it so that they couldn't export slaves out. And uh, it, was, it was a tough time, especially since uh, it was basically the same kind of problem Europe has always had with other countries, which I think that we can, we can sympathize with. It's the idea that if you can help someone do the right thing, should you? or should you force your will upon them? Uh, you know, think about Iraq, Iran, right? Like, when, when we go into an area and say, you're, you're gonna be a democracy now, you don't got a choice, right? <laughs> it's the question is, is that, is that good or bad? We can see that in, say, in Afghanistan, this recently happened, right? We show up, we are a peacekeeping force, we stabilize the region, but we're not exporting out our ideas, so what happens when we leave? It just goes back to the way it was, right? So you spend all this money and effort in an area, and unless you establish the ideas, if the ideas don't take root, then it'll just go away as soon as uh, the people that are, that are the strongest are in that area are, are uh, supporting that. So now you have Europe basically going into an area, this is the thing to understand about history, is that everywhere in the entire world, slavery was the norm. So you now you have uh, Britain basically trying to force all the rest of the world not to have slavery anymore, and it cost them dearly. It cost them so much. This is part of the reason why the colonies were so costly that they ended up just, when, they, when these countries said, we want to be independent, we don't want to be under Britain anymore, they said, okay, we're leaving. It's too costly anyways, and they would leave. Any thoughts or questions so far? I know we've covered a lot. We've covered like, what is that, 800 years <laughs> quickly. And uh, let's see, in about 25 minutes, that's amazing. Okay. So you have them blocking that and a lot of people coming to Freetown. 
And Freetown was a considerable influence on the western coast of Africa. One of the top schools performed there, and many people returned from slavery would come to Freetown for a time and then return to their original homes, often taking the gospel with them. So praise God for that. That's amazing, right? You had all of these, like I, I, I think of Joseph where he said, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, in the sense that God can use even the evil of men to, for his glory, right? Here's people that were under oppressive masters, and yet when they were freed, they came together and they, uh, they preached the gospel to all the indigenous people, and they were able to spread the gospel far better in Africa than um, the efforts of even the Europeans. Um, similar to Sierra Leone was Liberia uh, to the southeast. The coastline was settled by former slaves from the USA in the 1830s and 40s, and the country achieved independence in 1847. Uh, hence in Liberia, Liberia, like being liberated. And the inhabitants were proud that in their view, they were only Africans to be both free and civilized. Mission here was a serious concern, and in Sierra Leone, it was primarily an Anglican affair. A succession of bishops established a large number of mission centers in the area with considerable success, although they did not reach a wise area as the missions of Sierra Leone. Other black Americans were evan evangelized further along the coast, especially in Cameroon, where there was a thriving Jamaican Baptist population overseen by the English Baptist Alfred Saker. One of his protégés was Joseph Merrick, a brilliant linguist who translated parts of the New Testament into uh, East Cebu. He was also a printer, and so he was able to make his own translations, and that gave a huge boost to both the Christian missions and the spread of literacy because they actually had a printing press. So the two, as you know, go hand in hand. If, if the Bible can, can travel in printed form, uh, the, the faith is able to spread a lot better because it's able to have a consistent, you know, point to go back to. Well, what does the Bible say? Whereas if it's just two people arguing, you know how, that, how well that goes. Um, another significant figure of this era was a guy named Samuel Crowther. Born in what is now Nigeria in 1806, he was of a tribe called the Yorubu. Yorubu. Yoruba. Sorry, it's a technical thing. In a large group of people to the west of the old declining state of Benin, he was enslaved and then rescued and then sent to Freetown. Educated at school there um, and ordained in the Church of England, where Henry Venn was his mentor. And in 1845, he returned to the same land of his peoples and preached to large crowds. He opened schools, and his effort was joined by more than 2,000 Yoruba who were enslaved, and many were evangelical who came back to Africa in 1851. Just checking on the map, I looked this up. Of course, I can't remember. I should have circled it. It's interesting, though. Like I said, if people came in after I was, gave my little introduction in the beginning, grab one of these little handouts if you haven't grabbed one because it has a map and it actually shows the different churches that were established and the year they were established in. Also, it has these lines that talked about the path of travel from the various mission groups as they traveled to um, bring the gospel to these peoples. So in the latter half of the 19th century, there was an explosion again of European missions, uh, far more than the African continent. Uh, Robert Moffat, a Scottish missionary who together with his wife was sent to the LMS into the interior was now South Africa in 1821. And then you have another German guy named Johann Krampf and he spent years in Ethiopia hoping to use it as a base for further mission but he was expelled. And in 1844 he went on to a trading post in Zanzibar and then based his work out of Mombasa which is now uh, modern day Kenya working for many years to translate the New Testament into Swahili. So there's a sense among Europeans to connect these missionary efforts, but this mission idea was being combined with new ideas of European exploration and dominance into Africa. 
The famous Scotsman, David Livingstone, trekked from one coast to the next. This, remember, this is around 1813 to 1871. And he said this continent is ripe for exploration where commerce and Christianity might be imported together. So now you have the period, which is colonialism, where the Europeans would then actually try to penetrate into the south area of, of uh, Africa. Crowther's was the, of the old way, the old European colonialism. But this new European colonialism was a new way. And in 1885, the Congress of Berlin divided the continent artificially, ignoring the people, geography, and culture. Moving into the 20th century, various missionary efforts among the con continent took hold. Congo, the Zaire Basin, and South Africa. Mission efforts were led by Protestants by varying stripes, who often followed Catholics into these regions. So another uh, thing that's not in your notes, but I found very interesting is, I was looking up a video talking about the divisions of Africa. And this is something you guys should look up on your own because it gives you a, a picture into why Africa is so messy the way it is. You have, if you took a map of the people groups and the tribes and the indigenous tribes of Africa, which, you know, there's tons of them, and you split them up, and then you overlaid on top of that just the arbitrary lines that were drawn after World War I of like what these countries are going to be, you have countries that are like a square, and then in that square, there's like six tribes that hate each other. They're, they're, they're not like, the, the Europeans just came in and said, oh, this, this makes sense, we'll just draw lines right here, and now you're all Nigerian, right? And they're like, we're Nigerian? I, I, that tribe we've been at war with for hundreds of years, what are you talking about? And so, of course, none of these countries are able to uh, kind of find some equilibrium because now you have these artificial uh, ways of being recognized, and yet you have all of this history that's, that's established. So people have, have said, well, we need to redraw the lines of Africa. We need to go there and have the tribes themselves uh, de determine what groups they want to work with and redraw it. But as you know, uh, once something gets rooted in too deeply, it's really hard to unroot it. I mean, think about how long we've been talking about going on the metric system. Will that ever happen? Probably not, right? There's just too many things. There's too many supply lines. There's too many tools. There's too many things established in the imperial system of measurement. In the same way, there's too many, you know, economies and, and trade agreements and alliances and things done by the countries themselves and the governments that run those countries. There's no way to redraw the lines. But the problem is, it's not like the cultural or the historical is going to change either. So you're always going to have these very messy countries with very messy histories. And uh, it's going to be very difficult to go into those countries and to do missionary work without understanding that, without understanding that you could cross an arbitrary river and all of a sudden be in a completely different country by the way the people's record it, even though you, you know, you as a, you know, a westernized person is looking at it and like, oh, I'm, I'm still in the same country. So there's, there's a lot of problems with missionary efforts. There's a lot of issues that they, that they ran into. There's a lot of problems that they had. One of the things I was thinking about when I was uh, kind of reading through this lesson and I want to read a couple scriptures because I think this also illustrates another uh, problem that Christians have when we do missionary work. So you'll know in Acts 14, uh, this is the story of Paul and Barnabas at Lystra. And they go there, and in verse 8, it says, Now in Lystra there was a man sitting there who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also our men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a, a living God who made the heaven and the earths and the sea and all that in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Later on, Paul would land up on a, an island in Malta in chapter 28. And it says, you know, he's shipwrecked, and after they had brought safely through, they learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt, no doubt this man was a murderer, Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when he had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So here you have, the, you have Paul, it's kind of encouraging, I guess, right? You have Paul and Barnabas undergoing the same kinds of things that we're going to go through when we go to those places, right? Missionaries that are sent there are always having to deal with the syncretism or the beliefs of the local tribes, and you're going to instantly have the problem of them thinking that if you show any uh, education or any kind of uh, special understanding that you are, um, that you're, you know, you're gonna have these problems. Um, I guess it's, it's one of those things where, uh, maybe this is getting off notes a little bit, but I, I kind of wonder sometimes if in places that are in the deep um, areas of the edges of the world, right, where very few people have gone to, if miracles in terms of the miraculous miracles are still prevalent. You know, if God needs those as signs, uh, I hate to say God needs, let me correct myself, if people need those signs to understand that this message is really from the God of the Bible, um, versus, because that's what the, the signs were really for, was when the, when the disciples would show up into these areas, they'd do miraculous sign gifts to say, I'm preaching this new thing to you that you never heard. How do you know I'm telling the truth? Miraculous sign gifts. Oh, okay, yeah, that's pretty good proof, right? And so in the same way, what happens when you have the same problem? You go into places like the Amazon Basin or the middle of Africa. Would you need the sign gifts as well? It'd be an amazing thing. Um, in, the in, the, in this era where I feel like cell phones are literally everywhere, even the interior of Africa, you would think that you would see some kind of video or some kind of uh, a picture of something like that happening, but um, I have a, still have a lot of Pentecostal friends from my, my past, and they claim there's all kinds of um, things happening in Africa, but it's always a, a story from a friend of a friend of a friend, and never anyone's... Uh, did you see it directly? No, it was someone I knew. Oh, okay. Anyways, that was a little bit off to the side, but the point is, uh, there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of issues when you're going into uh, different countries and having to deal with them. So, modern era. Any questions or thoughts? No? Okay. So here's the, I, I set all that up because the next era, we have the 20th century, and we have the growth of African, Pentecostal, and prophetic churches is what they're called. And these prophets helped to swell the ranks of various churches, uh, but they also represented a new and highly African understanding of Christianity. There was a guy named Prophet Harris, 
he was indigenous to Liberia, and he was brought up Methodist, but he converted to the Church of England. He had a vision of the archangel Gabriel, who instilled an unshakable faith in the prophet, as him as the prophet of Africa. And in 1913, he crossed into Ivory Coast to preach, and he would speak to thousands of people and told them to turn away from their idols and to God. His message was uncompromising, and he did not accommodate traditional African religions. People responded in droves, 100,000 a year, many baptized by Harris himself. So when I hear a story like that, I, you know, the vision of Gabriel is a little suspect to me, but in terms of him being uncompromising with traditional African religions, and instead of uh, saying you need to turn from these false idols into God, um, praise God for that, if they really did. Uh, this guy named Simon Kim, uh, Kimbangu in the Congo region, and he was Baptist at a very young age and taught in a mission school, and in 1918, he began to preach, and he became disturbed by supposed visions of Jesus. In 1921, he supposedly healed, healed an ill woman, and the stories of his healing power spread. His followers grew into a church that reflected a growing charismatic or even Pentecostal nature of African Christianity, and he started a new denomination. Many European missionaries had believed in miracles described in the Bible, but they thought of them as a special biblical era events and did not expect to see them replicated. But many Africans did not distance themselves from the text in this way, and this led to, a quite, a, to quite a few new problems. And I think we still struggle with that, right? We, we have people that are sensationists, people that are con what are called continuationalists, and uh, the Bible is not specifically clear about the sign gifts ending, and so we have a split in terms of uh, the cessationists would say, well, we don't see these sign gifts uh, authentically, and so we have to assume that they stopped at some point. Um, but the continuations would say, well, no, it didn't. It's just that we, I don't know, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the major ones is we didn't have enough faith to continue on the sign gifts. We didn't speak out in faith. We weren't doing those things. But you can imagine if you got the Bible cold, you know, without knowing the history of the, of the church or knowing the history of, uh, say, Israel, that you would read Acts and you would think or uh, that these sign gifts could still be used um, even to this day. And so that's a misunderstanding that you have to go through. You can see where I fall on this, on this thing when I say it's a misunderstanding, right? After World War II, the continent again was thrown into upheaval, fueled by a complex number of things. Many Africans believed they could handle their matters better than their colonial powers. The Pan-African Congresses called for Africans to be allowed to govern themselves, Ghana to be the first sub-Saharan country in 1957. And then you have uh, the successful handover of power leading to independence for most African countries in the 1960s, Nigeria, Gabon, uh, the French and Belgian Congo, which took on a, a lot of different names, uh, Republic of Cond Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Tan Tanzania in 1961, Kenya, Zambia, and so on. So this would cause some turmoil for the churches, but the churches would also bring stability in some sense to the new African leaders, uh, because they would be, the leaders themselves were Christians. Probably the most bitter struggle was the events that led to the apartheid in South Africa. It was where you had a minority ru uh, white ruling people and, a, and the subjugation, discrimination, segregation of the black majority. I don't need to spend too much time on it, but uh, it was significantly impacted church life as congregations regret regrettably were also segregated by law. Although there were some Anglican Christians in South Africa who spoke out against apartheid, one individual, Trevor Hudson, wrote a diatribe calling apartheid an unchristian evil. He was expelled from the country. So there was quite a few that wrote against it, but were kicked out of the country for it. For throughout this whole period, the Christian center of gravity was shifting in South Africa from traditional, institutional, largely white-led churches to a new kind of church, spontaneous, local, black-dominated. And the African-initiated, or sometimes called the uh, 
African-initiated churches, AICs, uh, were on the rise. Christianity's story during this time period reflects other parts of the world. The passing authority from the established churches to Africans, the establishment of churches by Africans for their own. Many of these we have looked at were already in Kim, uh, Kimbangu and Harris. And the later AICs don't have great prophets like the early ones, but they certainly have charismatic founders. And there is disagreement about how these characterize AICs, but their importance and impact on African Christianity should not be understated. In 1985, it was estimated that there were some 12,000 churches or some 33 million members of this particular sect. So general characteristics, they serve their communities as opposed to new congregations within established denominations. And there was some distinction between the churches too. There are churches that are known as Zionist that are heavily influenced by Pentecostalism, but this isn't all of them. One of the AIC's defining feature is their local flavor. They may have large gatherings, but mostly they are smaller. Uh, they may have large gatherings, but mostly these churches are smaller gatherings with a couple of dozen so people in one. So they're small house churches. One feature that we've seen recur through this time period is the adoption of traditional religious beliefs and customs. There's healing ceremonies, there's prayers for the dead, several other practices that led to a syncretistic or combining of beliefs with Christianity. And the syncretism has made, such a false, has made such false teachings as the American prosperity gospel an easy belief to take up, right? So the problem, in it too, is that you have the prosperity gospel has, has gone and penetrated this as well. It has exploded into many of these AICs because, uh, th and th I think this is the problem sometimes with denominationalism. It's great to have independent denominations because no one can tell you what to do. But the problem is, is that if heresy takes root, there's no one to come in and tell you what to do, right? <laughs> so uh, you, have, you have pros and cons to any kind of church setup, right? Um, so here you have success from some denominations, but then the takeover and the corruption uh, because of heresies and various other things and other ones. But the problem is when we look at it in terms of an overview or when we're counting statistics or when we're looking at baptisms, all we look at is do you call yourself Christian or not? And so as you can imagine, that makes it very hard to actually know how many actual Christians are in Africa versus the various corruptions or the various nominalism that we have. It's very messy, but Africa is a massive country, so it's, you kind of expect that. I mean, think about our country and how messy we are, and we're comparatively not that many people in terms of the whole planet. So you have some that are still traditional denominations that are based in Europe and the USA, but the real power bases that are found, are found in Africa at this point are all African-led churches and AICs. So what can we do? So we as a local church should be praying and working alongside our African brothers and sisters to see the gospel spread in Africa and abroad. That's an obvious one. But we should also pray and try to talk to Africa, Africans, especially if we can meet people, Las Vegas is a great place, where we can meet people from different places and get an understanding of what the uh, situation is there. Um, we should be preaching the gospel to them, especially if they come here. Um, I think that if we have a connection of some sort to Africa, we should, we should use that um, to send aid, resources, Bibles, things like that, uh, hymnals. I know that there was a couple of uh, drives to do that kind of stuff. I think one of the big ones is we should pray that the prosperity gospel ends in Africa, right? It, no matter where it goes, it's, it's bad, but I can't think of anything more despicable than going to a place that's already very poor, very desolate, and then to take what they have for yourself and promise them everything under the world that God's going to bless them or they're going to have a great crop or whatever it is, and uh, you're just impoverishing them for, uh, even more. Um, it's, it's just, when we talk about wolves in sheep's clothing, 
this is what I think of, right? It's a person that looks like a sheep, although a poor imitation of one, but it looks like a sheep. That's what, how they're able to get in, and then they devour the real sheep, right? It, it just kills them. It, it's able to take everything they have, and they starve to death, thinking God has abandoned them, when it's really the, the, the corruption, the evil, the greed of these people that come in and take all their money from them. Um, Nine Marks ha- is also uh, a group that's constantly trying to think of a way to get and established churches there. And so this lesson has uh, Mark Nine Marks listed as a resource. If you're interested or you want to learn more, uh, that's a great resource to find out what they're doing in Africa and how they're trying to seek to not only expand the churches there, but get good resources in the hands of pastors so that they can fight these problems like the prosperity gospel and so on and so forth. We have a little bit of time left. Does anyone have any thoughts or uh, questions or comments? Yes, brother. Thank you, sir. Uh, so I was thinking about what you said about the independent denominations and stuff like how they establish their own denominations. I think really the, the biggest thing in holding a denomination together, if you want to call it that, is men of character. Because we can do what we did, like for example, in the 80s with the Southern Baptist Convention, where the conservative resurgence rose up, took the presidency long enough that we were basically able to vacuum out the leadership and install new ones. Uh, come out with a new Baptist faith and message and everything. But as we learned from history, that's, that, that's not foolproof. What helps out the churches uh, as a whole much more is having men of character that are willing to say, thus saith the Lord. That's what, uh, that's what really uh, help keeps keep the, the church healthy. And that's something that really everyone in the church can make some contribution towards because it says in, uh, in the New Testament, have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even expose them. So everyone mm-hmm. can play that role, uh, but what is especially needed as well is uh, men of character that will rise up and uh, help lead uh, churches in the right direction unto the glory of God. Yeah, well said. Um, if no one heard him, he was just saying that, you know, you have to have men in the church that are men of character that uh, will lead a denomination, because even if you have an established denomination that has leadership somewhere, obviously the local church is the, is the place where uh, the, the followers of Christ actually need that leadership, need that guidance, and need that, thus says the Lord, and uh, to tell them the truth of what the Bible says. Um, I remember listening to a podcast, I wasn't here for the lesson, but I know Pastor Corey had talked about this, that their, our church leadership also has thought of that, right? They want to raise up young men, and they want to train them in uh, how to be pastors, and uh, I was surprised, and one of those things, someone had asked a question, I didn't hear the question, but he was saying, oh yeah, you know, we always travel separately too, so we're not on the same plane. So if it goes down, I was like, I never thought of that. But yeah, I guess you that's a good thing to do. Yeah, sep- separate planes, right? This is that two and two. Because, uh, you know, we, if we lost two of them, you know, that would be incredibly sad. And, you know, God forbid. But, you know, we would have two strong men. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying which two. Because I think that they're all amazing. And that um, they, they would lead us well. But we're always trying to re- raise up more. Not only for obviously have a good eldership circle, but also, I think, to send out men to plant new churches, like the church that we planted in North Vegas. So, well said. Anyone else have any comments about uh, Africa and what we can do and thoughts of their denominations? I don't know if anyone knows much about it. Uh, I only knew bits and pieces about it. Unfortunately, uh, my experience prior to this lesson doing the research was uh, the videos you see of the prosperity gospel that you know, boiled my blood, but that's because I come from a charismatic background. Anything? Great. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, 
Let's quiet our hearts and our minds now. We just think about your glory, your kingdom. It's an amazing thing that you have gone to so many places and have changed the hearts and minds of people. People that were God-haters now love you. I remember reading the story that said that the disciples asked Jesus, if the requirements are to be better than the Pharisees, who can be saved? And he said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And we have that faith in you. We know that you're building your kingdom, you're building your church, even in the, the bloody and evil history of every place on this planet, especially in Africa. Lord, yet you are calling your own to yourself. You are changing hearts and minds, and you are giving them new hope and new life, and you are spreading the truth of your gospel, that this is a fallen world full of evil and war and blood, and yet you have called people that, were, that would never look at each other and think of themselves as brothers and sisters, and yet you have called us into one family. You have built us up, and I pray, Father, that our loyalty would first and foremost be to you and to your kingdom and to expanding it more than anything else, to look past all of those things that came before, even though those things can be important and treasured, like our culture and our, our way of life, and yet we should look past that to say, what brings the most glory to you? What encourages you? What, what binds us together as a church and builds us up, makes us stronger? To forgive sins and to correct heresy, to reproach those who need reproaching, to silence the mouths of those who need to be silenced, and yet to build up and to encourage and to grow. Father, I pray that you would disciple each one of us, that you have us grow in the knowledge of you, that you would bless each one of us with friends and people in the church that can build us up and encourage us and be there for us when we are struggling. And I, I pray that you would show us true Christianity, the one that you envisioned for us, where we'd all be united as one. I thank you, God, for all the good blessings that you've given us, food, clothing, shelter, um, a safe place to live, Lord, you have given us so many immeasurable blessings, and I pray that we would not take it for granted. Even when our lives are hard, Father, and they are hard, I pray that we would still give you thanks for the things you've given us. I pray that our hearts would be on Africa now and that we would pray for them. We would believe that you are doing something there, even if we can't see it, and that we would seek to help as, as best we can the churches outside of America, as well as the churches inside of America, that we would seek to grow your kingdom. Thank you again. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.